The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Lord, we find here a a call that echoes something that we'll see in 1 Samuel. Call to do good when evil comes our way. A call that is connected to a promise Bless that you may obtain a blessing. Lord, as we consider this today, as we watch David walk through it, I'm going to ask you to reach into this room and reach into our hearts and reorder what goes on inside of us moment by moment. To reorder our hearts that see offense and see evil that comes our way and see enemies and see trouble and tribulation. And from anger and from fear and from uncertainty, rise up against it and and hold it off and resist, sometimes retaliate. Reorder that within us, Lord, that we would instead return blessing, hoping, trusting in Your Word that says, you will bless. Do a work in us, Lord. I pray particularly for those of us here in in the congregation today, this week, who face hardships and troubles of various painful sorts. Would you draw near to those ones? Please, draw near. Make them aware. Make men and women and teenagers and kids aware that you are near. You dwell within us if we are your people. You are near. Make us aware of it. Make us aware of your goodness. Your gracious and long and passionate love. And call us to respond well, to respond in faith and in trust in the midst of such hardships. Lord, encourage and call ones who are suffering this week and all of us, in fact. But would you make your word clear? Would you open up this ancient text that we're going to look at and make it clear to us? Show us what's there. Help us to understand it to see Christ in it, to know how we are to respond. And Lord, I pray, would you set aside whatever distracts, whatever burdens, whatever whatever keeps us from attending to you and what you're speaking this morning. 
Help us to set it aside. Would you commission your spirit to move through the room and clear away sin, clear away distraction? Lord, I want to be a person who's after you. And I'm standing here amongst other people, Lord, who we want to be after you. So help, please, give, give us help. Draw near, open your word, and change us. Thank you for this time to consider the scripture and make it clear, we pray. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus, for the glory of God the Father. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 26 and the final encounter between David and King Saul. They never meet again after this chapter. Saul's been pursuing David for a number of chapters now, spanning many years, in fact. But David, as we know, is the one on whom God's hand rests, on whom his favor rests, the one that God intends to be king. For the moment now, still, Saul is the ruler. By God's intention, Saul's still king, but he hates David and is hunting him so as to kill him. And two chapters ago, in in chapter 24, that pursuit, Saul's pursuit of David, took an interesting twist. God presented to David a golden opportunity to bring to an end all of the hardship, all of the fear and all the suffering and all the, the discomfort of fleeing and hiding in a cave. He had a chance to bring it all to an end, and simultaneously it was a golden opportunity to bring on the experience of all the blessings that David wanted and knew he was supposed to have. All the blessings of being king, of being a a full member of the kingdom, of of experiencing the blessing of the Lord on the land and, and amongst the people in joy. He's supposed to have all that, and here's the chance to get it as his men urge him, if you would just rise up and murder Saul. You've got a chance. But David sees it for the temptation and for the test that it is, and says, no, he will entrust himself to him who judges justly. Trust him, the Lord, to avenge his cause. The Lord to do justice. He will not take matters into his own hands, at least not in chapter 24. Chapter 25, it's totally different. David is quite ready take matters into his own hands. As we saw last week, it's the very same issue, just dressed in different clothing. And this time, as David comes up against this particular rich fool named Nabal, he is extremely irritated, upset, angered at the injustice and the indignity that Nabal dishes out to him. And he is about to, to solve that problem with the sword and slaughter all of Nabal's house. Never mind that that would be faithlessness and an abandoning of the Lord would bring on him the curse of God, would deny him the throne, cause all the promises of God to come crashing down. Never mind, David is going to act. And then we see, wonderfully, the gracious God providentially steps in and stops him and preserves him. This is the point for us. This is how God deals with David and with all of his people to preserve them from self-destructive sin. It's the grace of God that does that. He, yes, he uses a particular woman named Abigail and her discernment and initiative. He uses means, but it's the grace of God that does that, preserving his saints. And now, in chapter 26, it's the same issue again for the third time. 
Not because the author forgot he's already written about this. And we shouldn't skip it. Well, it's the same thing. But we've already seen this. It's in there for the third time in, in, in a row to show us something. It's Saul again, like it was the first time. And now David's different. He's learned something. He has a, a renewed and deepened confidence. And he responds differently. And we need to see that as we look at chapter 26 today. I'm going to read all of chapter 26 and pass back through it to make sure that we understand it before making some observations. This is chapter 26, 1 Samuel. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gebeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zariah, Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then said Abishai to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your Lord the King? For one of the people came in to destroy the King your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the King's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. 
Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. The king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may He deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. First Samuel 26. The passage begins with David still in the southern wilderness and with the Ziphites once again betraying his location to Saul, and Saul comes out to hunt him down. It's like we've read this story before. And we have, sort of, but there are some important differences here, particularly in verses 3 to 7. David is not depicted here as fleeing and hiding. Instead, now he's presented to us as watching and is taking the initiative. David saw that Saul was coming out to, to chase him, and he takes the initiative to send out men to, to watch, to figure out where Saul's going, what he's doing, where he is encamping. And then verse 5, he comes to the camp and, and conducts his own reconnaissance and sees where Saul's laying, sees that Abner, commander of the army, is lying next to him, sees the, the encirclement, which, which would have been like a, a, a protective area, an embankment, an entrenchment sort of. Saul and his bodyguard, the commander of the army in there, and then 3,000 men encamped around him. David gets all of that, and then he makes a plan and asks for a volunteer to go down with him into the camp to Saul. This is totally different than David hiding in a cave and just hoping that Saul walks on by. He sees this, and he seeks him out. Sees the camp, sees where he's lying, and asks for a volunteer. And so Abishai, brother of Joab, who is the son of David's sister, this Zariah is his sister, so this is his nephew, Abishai, he volunteers to go on what is surely an assassination mission. We've staked this out. We've cased the joint, so to speak. Who wants to come with me to go down to Saul? Oh, <laughs> says his nephew. Take me, please. This is surely an assassination mission, except that it isn't. When they get to the camp, 
They get all the way right up next to sleeping Saul with Abner sleeping right next to him. The army is asleep all around them. The spear stuck in the ground right next to his head. There's a water jar there too, a canteen. It's not mentioned though first. What's, what's most clear here is spear, head. What's supposed to happen next is obvious. We are between the bodyguard, next to the spear, with the head. Oh, please. Let me strike him. I'll only take one, I'll only take one shot. Let me strike him. I'll pin him to the ground and this will all be over. Surely the Lord has given him into your hand. But David doesn't allow it. For the very same reason that he wouldn't allow it before. This is the Lord's anointed. He says this three times in the passage. It's the Lord's anointed. This is the one that the Lord has made king. Is he a bad guy? Absolutely he's a bad guy. Absolutely. He wants to kill me. I get that. But the Lord has him on the throne for now. We cannot stri- I, I cannot stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed to remain guiltless. We're not doing this. But we are going to take the spear in the canteen. They pick those up and they leave. Which is all possible because of what verse 12 tells us at the end, because of the miraculous intervention of the Lord. This is not providence. Providence, as we've talked about and seen again and again and again, is the Lord using ordinary events, secondary ordinary events to accomplish His purpose. This is not providence. This is miracle. The Lord sent a deep sleep on all of them. It's the same idea as back in in Genesis where the Lord sent a deep sleep on Adam and took his rib out and made Eve. This is... This is the Lord putting people to sleep such that they do not awake. He miraculously intervenes. And so David and Abishai can walk on in and walk on out. And when they get out, get up a distance away on top of the hill, David calls out, here's a difference from chapter 24, not to Saul, but he calls out to the army and to Abner. Abner. Why is he calling to Abner? Because he's got a problem with Abner. He talks to Abner and to the army as it moves through verses 15 and 16. It's first singular and then plural. He's talking to the one man, Abner, and then to the whole army saying, Why didn't you guard the king? Why didn't you? One came into the camp tonight to kill the king. And who defended him? You, the one who's supposed to? You all, the ones who's supposed to? Who defended the king? I did. From the one, Abishai, who wanted to kill him. You all deserve to die for being asleep at your posts and letting an assassin walk right up to the king. You deserve death, not me. I am a righteous defender of the Lord's anointed. I counted his life as precious tonight. I don't deserve death, which is now what he says as he turns to Saul and Saul recognizes his voice and calls out to him. Is that you? Yeah, that's me. And similarly to what he said before, I'm innocent. What what evil have I done? Look, here's the evidence that, that your life was in my hands and I counted your life as precious. Saul says it and David says it. They're both really clear on it. He pleads his innocence and he pleads his grievance. Again, tactfully blaming it on other people. 
If it's men who have driven me away from the Lord's heritage and in effect said to me, go, serve other gods. You can't have any part of this God. That, that's wrong for them to do that to me, to drive me away. And he's, he's reckoning here with an Old Testament reality. Now, now surely God is everywhere on the earth, but in, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, particularly God manifested himself in a place. Remember right above the ark? which usually sat in the the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, then later in the temple, which was in the middle of the land, in the middle of the people. This was God's hand uniquely here. And they are saying to David, get out of here. Go away. You can't have a part of this. He says, that's wrong. I'm I'm a righteous man. I I, I defend the king. And you're driving me away from the, the blessing of God? Wrong. It's wrong. But I will entrust myself to the Lord. And trust, as he says, that he rewards, verse 23, he rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. I counted your life precious, Saul, and I'm trusting not you to count my life precious, but the Lord to count my life precious and to reward me. That's the passage. Chapter 26, similar issues to 24, but different. I'm going to develop them along two lines, make two observations here. First one is about a great reality that should give us that kind of rest and hope. There's a great reality here that should give us rest and hope. So here's the first observation. The Lord's hand rules over all our enemies in all our tribulation. The Lord's hand rules over all our enemies in all our tribulations. He is the omnipotent one the sovereign, the king over all of the earth, which includes all of us, no matter who you are, includes you. Hand reigns. He rules over all circumstances, even the hard ones. Rules over all of the enemies of his people. Rules in every tribulation that is both stated and illustrated in this chapter. Verse 8, Abishai speaks to David, just expressing his, his amazement at the opportunity presented to them. He put his head and the spear right here. I just need to pick it up, move it over, and put it down again. Let me strike him. Problem solved if you let me strike him. And David says essentially, no, the problem actually already is solved. Verse 9, we're not going to strike him, that would be sin. But verse 10, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, that is supernaturally, or perhaps providentially, disease or old age will come along and he'll die, or perhaps providentially, he'll go to battle and he'll die there. One way or the other, the Lord will take care of him when he chooses, how he chooses. I don't know how or when, but I learned something from Nabal. There's a word connection between the two chapters. At the end of chapter 25, when Nabal's heart dies and it becomes a stone, then ten days later the Lord struck him. 
And then David says, verse 39, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and kept me back from wrongdoing. The Lord took care of it. Kept me back from wrongdoing. I don't know how, I don't know when, but just like he took care of Nabal, he will take care of Saul. I cannot sin, but I can trust him to strike him in his time, in his way. Because Saul exists under his hand. The Lord reigns. Let let your mind run on this. You you read a verse like that and and you understand what it means. He's going to strike him or maybe he'll die. I mean, you get that, but but you need to look at this verse and go, and and let your, your mind run with it. This is David reckoning with a marvelous, massive reality that the Lord reigns. That He controls all things and all people and all circumstances. This is His world and all people, all supernatural spirits, all animals, all weather patterns, all righteous ones, all wicked ones, all good events and all bad events, all sit under His hand. And I can put this one in my mind where He already is beneath the Sovereign One. David looks at, at an enemy at a threat to his very life, and realizes that this one exists only so long as God decides that he exists. All of my enemies, they all have their day. They rant and they rage and they hurl their spears until the Lord says, no more, and then they are done. Christian, do you see this? You face enemies. You face troubles and trials and tribulations in the world. And they all exist. They all have their day. They have their run. Only as long as the Lord says, run. And when He says, stop, it's done. They realize they're suddenly on a leash existing beneath the one who controls every atom and every moment and every event of everything in life. He will strike him like he did Nabal. Or he'll let him live till the end of his days. Or he'll kill him in battle. Whatever he will do, he will do. But he will do it. It's stated and it's illustrated. Why did David do what he did? Now, there's, there's a purpose that's in the second observation, but there's a purpose that's right here in this one too. Why did David go down to Saul? We see it if we notice the difference in chapters 24 and 26. 24, he's hiding, fleeing, And there's an opportunity presented to him. In 26, he initiates and creates. He didn't find Saul asleep at his feet. He went down there to stand next to him. And he doesn't find Saul inadvertently, accidentally, otherwise disposed and vulnerable. 
He comes to Saul, we are very carefully told, in all of his deliberate, careful guardedness. We can presume that any military force would post sentries at night, so that goes without saying, that there are sentries around the camp. And there are 3,000 men, it says, sleeping around him. And there is an inner fortification. And there is a bodyguard. And there is a spear. He's sleeping on his weapon next to one of the most skilled warriors in the land amidst, three, amidst an encirclement, amidst 3,000 warriors with sentries. He is as safe and secure as any man can be, and he is totally helpless. Do you get that? He is as safe and secure as any man can be in his day. And he is totally helpless. David walks right down there to prove it. And picks up and takes away the spear of his power and the water of his life and walks away with them. To prove it. All of that is made possible because, verse 12, the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on them. Something with which they cannot contend, cannot guard against, cannot stop. There's no remedy to it. There's no resisting it. Not the best security measures in the world. Not the best warrior in the land. Nothing can stop it. There is a message in this to Saul and company and to David and company, and to us. He says to Saul, he says to all of us, why is Saul still king? Why is Saul still king? Because he's politically savvy and militarily powerful? Well, God providentially uses that, sure. But at the bottom analysis, that has nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do with it. Saul's still king because God wants him to be king. And if he doesn't, let me show you the power I have over you, Saul. I'll put your whole army to sleep and walk an assassin up right next to you. I hold your life in my hand. And you draw the next breath because I decide you will draw one more breath. This is the Lord sovereign over everything and over everyone. There's a message to Saul and to Saul's company in that. And perhaps a message to the Saul's of the world. There's a moment of raging, there's a moment of power, and there's a moment when you seem to be on top and have all the world at your hand, realize that you sit in someone else's hand. And there's a message in that, a call to repentance. It is possible that someone here, this is a message to you. You may be running right now. You may have a full head of steam, and you may have the world at your feet, so to speak. You sit in the hand of one who in a moment can call your life to account and tonight demand it of you. And if he demands it, you will give it. I do not say that boastfully. I say that to be faithful to the God of the Bible who has revealed to all of us where we sit in relation to the one to whom we must give an account. Are you ready to give up your life tonight and answer to him? I say that in blood earnestness, because this is so important, we live in life under a delusion that we will live forever and then at the end we'll enter into our glory. And the Bible says this is appointed for man once to die and then to face judgment. And death and life is held in the hands of the judge. 
Are you ready to face Him? Because you will, perhaps tonight. There is a message to Saul and to Saul's, maybe to you. There's a message to us who suffer under the Saul's and under other tribulations. And it's fair to spread this to other tribulations, not just to enemies, because David himself does in verse 24. May he deliver me out of all tribulation. He's seeing something here and applying it to all. So I'm I'm talking about an enemy and applying it to tribulation. There's something here, Christian. Christian, there's something here. Grab a hold of this. And there is something here that is perhaps hard at first. But if you keep holding on to it and keep thinking about it and keep looking at it, it will become great hope. The only hope and great hope. Hard thing first, though. I stopped at sort of this point in my, my thinking about this passage and just thought through our congregation and the enemies, tribulations, troubles, trials that we face. And if you will do that, and if you have a little bit of insight in what's going on with people, you will find a long list to weep over. A long list to weep over. I can think of, off the top of my head, that I know of three immediate family deaths recently. Numerous marital troubles, some fresh and some old that keep causing fresh wounds. Troubles in families, sometimes with kids and sometimes with adults, sometimes kids and adults. And often problems multiply and breed other problems. So you have marital problems that then produce problems for kids, that then produce problems for other kids, that then produce problems for kid and parent relationships, that then produce problems in school. It just multiplies. And if you look at that and are, and are half aware and half compassionate, it'll just make you weep. It's, trouble is real. Tribulation is real. And then there are the usual offenses given, insults and prejudices and slandering, sometimes at work, sometimes in neighborhoods, sometimes even within relationships in the church. It's tragic. And then I think about the things that I don't know about. Because I'm sure that there is a collection of assaults and grievances that have not hit the light of day. There are struggles with sins or, or open embracing of sins that I'm, I'm completely unaware of. There is wreckage at home behind smiling faces in the pew that I'm unaware of. There, there are past crimes committed against you that you never bring to light. There are enemies and there is trouble, offenders and threats, and then to a lesser degree, just difficulties and and complications and hard people 
and troubles and doubts and unbelief and sin in loved ones that you can't make go away. That perhaps might be one of the worst things to look at a loved one and watch him or her continue to drag him or herself down. If you would just, I can't make you, but if you would just, and he or she won't. It just kills you if you care about it. It just kills you. You can't make it stop. And the hard thing is, as you think it through one more lap, you realize God could. I can't make it stop. I can't make this person go away. I can't, I can't, ah, God could, but he hasn't. You're saying that everything exists under the omnipotent one's hand, and he could, but he hasn't. He could have stopped that. He could have kept that man from doing that, but he didn't. could have raised up his hand and just just one stroke and he brings it to an end but he didn't and instead he leaves the pain and doesn't change the situation and so you are like David so it seems who for 13 years you realize there are 13 years between Goliath and when he becomes king 13 years he's many of them a marked man Deprived of experiencing the good heritage of the Lord, chased out of the land, his life threatened. We, we read about this, we know how it ends, it all looks nice and, and, and clean, but I don't know, for a good decade, he's a wanted man. And we're, we're left like him, so it seems, crying out. Deprived of the blessing that we know should come to us as Christians, as members of the kingdom, as, as heirs of the king. There's something that should be and isn't, and God could make it so, but hasn't yet. This is the hard part. We can get out of it by denying that God could do anything about it. That, of course, is ridiculous, though people do it all the time. God, of course, can do something about it. He's the sovereign one. We are left crying out with tribulation still running its course and the enemy still lives and Saul is still on the throne. Or so it seems. The the thing you have to set up right next to that, the only thing that is real hope is the fact that Saul is on the throne because the Lord is on the throne over him. His sovereign hand reigns over Saul and you know something about his sovereign hand. Not only that it is powerful, you know something about this one's hand. What am I going to say next? What do you know about this one's hand? Think. Has this one tipped his hand to you in any way to reveal to you what he's like? There are some people who when they have someone under their hand, they love to toy with them and afflict them, gain pleasure even from their pain. 
Is that what he's like? Has he left Saul, I'll put that in quotes, Saul over you because he loves to see you tormented? Is that what's happening? Do you know something about his hand? His hand that reigns over it. Do you know something about his hand? I hope you do. David knows something about this one's hand. Not just that he can take care of Saul whenever he pleases, but he knows that this one who reigns is the God of, it's a simple word, love to his people. It's a simple word. It is a critical word. It it might be more interesting if I made it more complicated than that, but I shouldn't because that's it. What is this, this one whose hand is over it? What is he doing in your life when he doesn't stop, doesn't prohibit, or doesn't bring to an end? What is he doing in your life? He is doing you as he always does. He is doing you good. Oh, Christian, Christian. This is the hardest thing in the world to believe in the midst of suffering. And it is the most glorious thing in the world to believe in the midst of suffering. It is impossible. Everything in life screams out, that's not true. But oh, if you could see it to be true, everything would scream out with joy. God is doing me good, even as I weep. He is, Christian, He is. How do you know that? Where do you get that, preacher? I don't know. What am I going to say next? Do you know where I get that? I've read the rest of the book. I just kept reading. And I saw some of what it means. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. I think of that. I think of First Peter. I'm getting ahead of myself here. First Peter chapter 3. His eyes are upon those who do good. His ear open to their prayer. His face against those who do evil, but His face open towards the ones who don't do evil. That'd be nice, but I do evil. Oh, but He's made you righteous in Christ at the cross. You knew I had to get there. I hope you got there. I hope you knew where that was coming because it has to come in because that's where He says to you, I am doing you good I gave you my son whose blood shed for your sin. Along with him I give you all things. What can separate you from this love? Not a thing. Not a thing. Not a thing. But in fact, I use all of those things and work them for good in your life. His hand is over it. And when he doesn't take it away, that can be a problem. We realize this, that what, until you realize his hand is over it, working it. I have to be honest and say, sometimes I have no idea how. We have to be honest with that, right? It's a mystery there. But working it, along with all other things, for good in me, to make me like Christ. 
to draw me into communion with Him so that when Christ is revealed, though I have been grieved for a little while now, what comes out of me is praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. As I see Him and see Him in newness and in depth and in breadth differently than I ever would have otherwise. He's doing good. Exactly how and exactly why, 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 why 13 years? Why not 12? I don't know. Wouldn't 8 have been good enough? Maybe. These are things we'll never know the answer to. But we can know the one who holds it all in his hands and beneath whom every single one of our enemies and every single one of our tribulations is allowed for time to live and move and have its being. And then to not. This is God. This is God Almighty. This is the Almighty God who is good to you, Christian. A steadfast love for you. A steadfast love for you. This is the hope. The sovereign God who is the great and good and wise lover of your soul. This is your hope. That all is under that one's hand. So you trust Him and walk forward with Him, responding then how in life. That's, this is the second point then. Second observation, our response is this. Love your enemies, hoping in the Lord. Love your enemies, hoping in the Lord. So one purpose in David going down to the camp was to carry off Saul's spear and to show that the Lord will carry off his authority and carry off his life when and, when and as he pleases. One purpose. But the second one, there's, there's another purpose. And we'll approach it through verse 6. David asks for a volunteer to go down with him into the camp. Why does he need somebody else? He doesn't need help carrying the spear. So it's kind of a one-man deal. He doesn't need a bodyguard. The Lord's going to take care of that. What does he need? Well, he asks for accompaniment for the sake of verse 15. So that he can say to Abner, one of the people came into the camp to destroy the king. Not me. One of the people came into the camp to destroy the king. I defended the king from him. That's why he brings Abishai, because he knows Abishai, as all of them, are going to want to kill him. Here's what happened. I stopped him. I protected the king. I did good to the king, though he has done me evil. Though his actions have deprived me of my share in the heritage of the Lord, have driven me away from the sweet presence of the Lord, though his actions have caused me to suffer now for these years, verse 24, I regarded his life as precious and I defended it. I loved my enemy and did not stretch out my hand against him to strike him. Though he hurled this very spear at me, I did not take it up and strike him with In fact, here, take it back. I turn my other cheek to you. I give you back the weapon with which you can kill me. And in fact, that's, what's, that's what David's saying here as he calls out to Abner and then gives the spear back. It's why he, he created this. Now, 
Obviously, the Lord was involved in this too. The Lord is the one who put the sleep on him. So the Lord led him into this somehow, told him to do it in some way. But he creates an opportunity in which he can show his heart disposition towards Saul, which he can show something quite different than the previous chapters. He wouldn't strike him because it would be wrong. He's willing to strike Nabal. And now he won't strike him, but even more, will actively do him good, will defend him. Showing us what God's worthy king is like. One who will love his enemies and seek to save their lives. He's showing us something. Showing us what another David would be like one day. Who would love his enemies and seek to do them good so much so as to save their lives. When when reviled, he did not revile in return. When cursed, he did not threaten. He taught us who claim his name to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us, to count their lives as precious, even if when they afflict us and mean to do us harm. Even when we are in David's situation, and he's in a real situation, even then we are called to love. So I have to put it out to you and say, Do you love? Do you love your enemies? It's probably not common for us to say, I hate my enemies. We know that's wrong. We probably just avoid them and do not seek to do them good. So I'll put it to you like that then. Do you seek actively to bless, to count as precious those who oppose you, afflict you, trouble you, attack you on purpose, let alone incidentally. Now, I, I of course need to add in a, a whole bunch of qualifiers, which I'll just throw under a great big umbrella. Good needs to be defined, and love needs to be defined. It could just be the most loving thing for this person is to get arrested and thrown in jail. That, that, that could very well be good. Good and love do not mean something soft and namby-pamby and always permissive. But good, to do good to, to bless, to love, to count the life as precious and to seek to, to uphold means to, to think through what is good and, and a blessing for this person. Is it perhaps something hard or is it something good and soft? Maybe it's one or the other in a given situation. I'm just asking, do you want to do good? Do you want to bless this person? We're called to. 
David models it for us here. Christ models it for us. 1 Peter 2 says that we are to be like Him when we suffer for doing good to not revile and not curse, but instead to entrust ourselves to Him who judges justly. So, so do you? How? Love your enemy. How? Well, how did David do it? How does 1 Peter tell us to do it? How did Christ do it? Their mind set on something else. David very carefully says, verse 24, Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, look at it closely, so may my life become precious in your sight. doesn't say that. David's counting Saul's life precious not for a moment thinking that Saul's going to return the favor and not hoping in it at all. Your life was precious in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord and may He deliver me out of all tribulation. Or up in verse 23, the Lord rewards every man. Which is what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, verses 8-12. through 12. Do not revile when reviled, but instead bless that you may obtain a blessing. From whom? From the Lord. We, we love our enemy. We, we love this way, not by looking this way, but by looking here and saying... I believe you to be the one who has a hand over this and will do me good as I walk with you. I will not sin against you and seek to get my own good. I will trust you and walk with you and believe that you, in your time, in your way, in your day, in due time, you will lift me up. So I will cast all my anxieties on you and I will seek to represent you here trusting that as I walk with you here, you in time will bless. That's a good thing. That's a sure thing. It, it, it's a, it is terrible to constantly be hoping, if I do good to this person, eventually this person will change and do good back. No, no, he won't. No, she won't. Maybe. But no, I do good here looking to the Lord. He is my hope. And the blessing that He bestows on those who walk with Him. That is my hope. Christian, He calls you to walk with Him blessing others, loving your enemies, and praying for those who persecute you, firmly fixed on His bestowing of blessing on you as faithful follower. I, I do not mean to say that makes it all easy and tidy and clean. If I read one more verse, chapter 27, verse 1, then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. He's not permanently fixed. He's still afraid. The threat is still real. 
I'm not saying that what I've said here permanently solves. What I'm saying is that this is the fight for today, and tomorrow you'll have to fight it again. Christian, everything that you're going to face tomorrow or this afternoon, everything, everything is beneath the hand of the omnipotent one who is good to you and in due time will pour out on you all of the blessings of the kingdom that he has promised That is a rock-solid assurance, a promise to you. As sure as the tomb is empty, it's a promise to you. And looking at that promise, seeing that promise, then you can follow Him loving your enemies. Not seeking to take matters into your own hands and secure yourself with them. To pour out your life and love them. God is your hope, Christian. And He is a sure hope. Trust Him and love those who oppose you. Let me pray. God, would You help us? Would You help us in the midst of difficulties and hardships? Maybe they're from particular enemies or maybe they're from those who are not our enemies, but in fact are our loved ones and are hurting and troubled. Would you help us? Would you do a work in the minds of your people here and give them strong assurance of your nearness, strong assurance of your goodness, strong assurance of your omnipotence, We need this. It leaks out of us. It gets poured in and runs out the holes in the side. And I pray, plug up the holes and pour it in again. That you are good, that you are strong, that you are near, that you have each one here in your hand. God, have mercy. Deal with your people mercifully. Give assuring and comforting grace. Show your love. Stir our hearts with it. Cause us to see you. We need you, Lord. So draw near, I pray. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.